Our gospel lesson this morning is from the gospel according to Luke, the 18th chapter, verses 9 through 14. Hear now the word of God. The he being referred to here is Jesus. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Of course, I had a little game I played with the children just a moment ago about thinking we're better than other people. And I think it's important that I preach this particular scripture this morning because I, you might not know this, but I am known for my humility. I may be the most humble person you'll ever meet. In fact, people are jealous of my humility. I can't tell you how many cards and emails and letters I get every week saying, Thomas, you're just the most humble person I know, and I wish I could be more humble than you. I am, frankly, I'm the greatest at humility. I'm the, be- the only thing I'm better at than humility is modesty. Other than that, I've got it all going on. Of course, you see what I'm doing there, don't you? That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about humility and a sort of false humility and, and, and genuinely seeing ourselves as God sees us. He talks about how we can, if we're not careful, make ourselves feel good at the expense of other people. That we might even create opportunities to look down on other people and, and use excuses for why it's okay. You know, Jesus tells this parable using a a, a tax collector and a Pharisee. And I want to pause for just a minute this morning to make sure we understand what Jesus is talking about. So when Jesus tells a parable, he's using uh, symbolic language to help his his hearers understand a point. And so they would have understood exactly when I said Pharisee, or when he rather said Pharisee and tax collector, his hearers would have known exactly what he was talking about, what he meant. And just to make sure we understand that symbolic world, the the sort of connotations and associations that people would have had with a Pharisee and a tax collector, let's think about who those people were in Jesus' day. A Pharisee was a religious leader. There was in the time before, there was a period of time rather, when in the ancient Jewish world there were two places of worship, the home and the temple. In the home, the head of household, usually the father, would sort of lead worship on Friday nights around the table. The Passover meal, for example, is an example of worship in the home and would have served a sort of priestly function there. But every member of the household would would participate and be part of this sort of worship in the home. But then there was also the temple where you could bring a sacrifice and you had to have a priest be an intermediary between you and God. But no matter how much you worshipped in the home, to be in full relationship with God would mean coming to the temple, bringing a sacrifice to the temple, praying in the temple. 
But over time, there developed a, a, a new sort of third place of worship that would have come in a few centuries, really, before Jesus, represented by the Pharisees, and that was the third place of worship, the synagogue. And this is something we Christians ought to pay special attention to because it's where we, the root of our idea of a local congregation is rooted in the idea of a synagogue. Now think about the idea of a synagogue would be a place where the people would gather for to hear preaching, to worship, to pray for the instruction of children. And it was uh, both a, a place of worship and Christian education and community center sort of all rolled into one. And you could have one anywhere as long as you had enough people to form together to say the prayers, you could have a synagogue. So every big cities would have synagogues and tiny villages would have synagogues, regardless of where they were in the world. And by the time of Jesus, there were synagogues anywhere there were Jewish people. And the synagogue is the, the, the venue of the Pharisee. The Pharisees emerged as religious leaders who would be able to bring the presence and fullness and mercy of God to bear in people's home, the place where they lived, the place where they worked. So no longer did you have to wait for pilgrimage to travel to Jerusalem to have to do with God maybe once or a few times a year if that frequently. But you could be in community with your brothers and sisters and with God right there where you live. So what I'm getting at is the Pharisees, you might think of them as reformers. And, and the way that they governed this life together was they had a set of rules. It was based on the laws of the Old Testament that they expanded on. And their whole idea was to lead a holy life, to lead a life that honored God. And the way they made sure you did that is by following all these rules. Have you ever heard the expression about we sometimes we forget the why behind the what? The what of thing, well, it's a good expression and you can use it, but sometimes we forget why we do things, we just know that we do them, and we forget the reason. By the time of Jesus, a lot of Pharisees knew what to do, but had began to neglect the why of doing them, which was to be in relationship with God. A sort of strict legalism had emerged among some Pharisees that meant that the most important thing was following these rules. So following the rules in and of themselves became the goal and not the relationship with God that they fostered. When Jesus is talking about Pharisees, and he frequently uses Pharisees as a foil for his teaching, that's what he's talking about. Religious leaders that have this sort of strict legalism that would sort everybody into good and righteous in God's eyes, like them and then everybody else. So when Jesus says Pharisee, his hearers would have heard, understood all that in a moment. They would have understood and seen that person in their mind's eye. And when he talks about the tax collector, and I talked about tax collectors a couple, three weeks ago, so I don't want to tread over ground we've already covered, but just a reminder that a tax collector would have been in the Roman system and the place, the, the, the Jewish homeland at the time of Jesus had been conquered and occupied by the Romans. A tax collector would be an indigenous person to that area, in this case a Jewish person, who uh, contracted with the Romans to raise revenue, which meant, one, he was taking money, literally taking money from his neighbors, but he was probably taking too much because that's how they got rich, and he was a collaborator. He was in league with the oppressor, the occupier. 
So they would have seen a religious leader in their mind that might have problems, but he's still a religious leader. And then they would have seen this awful human being called a tax collector. And then Jesus tells this parable where the Pharisee's prayer is, Lord, thank you so much that I'm not like all those awful people. Thank you so much, Lord, that I'm especially not like that guy over there. Because if I were like him, that would be awful. Jesus leaves us that as a way to remind us that we need to be humble. He uses that parable and then says that the one who humbles him or herself will be exalted and the one that exalts him or herself will be humbled. Consider Jesus himself as a model for this. For this to make sense, I'm going to have to wander into a little bit of theology of the Trinity which I'm scared to do because no matter how much you talk about the Trinity, you can't understand it. And also, Trinity Sunday's coming up in a few months, and I need to have something to talk to you about on that Sunday. Derek, I might make you preach that Sunday so I don't have to. But it's not that I don't like the Trinity or believe in the Trinity. It's just hard to understand because it's the belief that God is one God, one God in three persons. Not three parts of God that make up a full. God is not one-third, one-third, one-third. It's not the idea that, that, that there are three gods that cooperate to make the universe work. It's the idea that we have one God, the theological word we use is persons, one God and three persons which together make God in God's fullness. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are distinct from one another, but they are united in essence and purpose. So that's the idea of Trinity. And I start with that idea if we're going to talk about Jesus, because if we believe that in the Trinity, that we believe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God, and we believe that God is eternal, that means that has no beginning and no end. We think about the no end, but we don't always think about the no beginning. That God, and, and that's another thing that kind of makes our eyebrows throw together. The, the concept of eternity is something we, we can sort of conceive of, but can't really wrap our minds around that something could literally go forever in both directions or in every direction. If God is eternal, if God has no beginning and no end, and the Son is one person of the Trinity, that Son is eternal. The Son of God didn't come into existence on December 25th in the year zero. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who we call Jesus when he became flesh, is eternal. Now when Jesus was born, the eternal God became flesh and became one of us. We see examples of, of this in other places in Scripture, for example, in the book of Genesis, in the creation story, we see the Word of God, which is another way of speaking of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, moving over the water, saying Christ was present in creation. In the beginning, the first chapter of John's Gospel, we have the words that the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is eternal as part of God, as a person of God. So when Jesus became flesh, God became flesh. 
God became a human being. Think about that. Existing in eternity. Existing in perfection. Yet humbling oneself to become one of us. To live in flesh. God wore diapers. Because Jesus wore diapers. God had to learn to walk. Because Jesus, as a toddler, had to learn to walk. All the inconveniences and downsides of human existence, except for sin, God experienced in Jesus Christ. If we're going to say the fullness of God lives in Christ, and I believe that it does and did, then God humbled himself to become like us in every way but sin. Jesus is an example of that, humbled himself even to the point of experiencing pain and death. In his divine power, Jesus could have done something to dull himself or eliminate the sensation of pain when he was beaten and crucified. In his divine power, Jesus could have done something to to, to not die He could have used his divine power to come off the cross, but he didn't. He died. But then three days later, as we know, it comes the exaltation part. He rose again. And when Jesus experienced resurrection and the power of God, he didn't come back like he was before. He wasn't just brought back to life. He was exalted. He was raised to glory. We see him existing in a new and different way, in a a way that reflects God's glory, in a way that reflects the way you and I have the offer to exist for eternity. That's what Jesus experienced in resurrection. He humbled himself. And in humbling himself through death, he was exalted through resurrection. Jesus says the one who humbles him or herself will be exalted and the one who exalts him or herself will be humbled. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, which we normally think of as an instruction not to think too highly of ourselves, certainly not to think too highly of ourselves at the expense of others. But as we speak of humbling ourselves, I want us to keep in mind the first part of the greatest commandment uh, there when Jesus says, love others as you love yourself. Part of that means loving yourself. How can you love somebody else the way you love yourself if you don't love yourself that much? If you don't think too much of yourself, you're not going to treat the people around you like they're worth an awful lot either. It means loving ourselves and not loving ourselves because we're just great and have some innate goodness or badness, but that love of self comes from being God's daughter and God's son. It comes from being made in the image of God. In other words, Jesus calls us to humility like the tax collector, but not too much like the tax collector. We can have a realistic assessment of ourselves, but still know that we're children of God, loved by God. You know, I have a thing I do when somebody says something negative about themselves in front of me. Like if someone were to say, I can't believe how dumb I am sometimes. I'll say, don't talk about my friend that way. I'll do that to my children. 
when they say something bad about themselves. Like, I can't believe I'm so stupid. I'll say, I'm not, nobody, I don't let anybody talk about my son that way. I don't let anybody talk about my daughter that way, including themselves. See, friends, it's a balancing act, I guess. Having a, not just having a realistic understanding of who you are, but knowing that whatever worth we have comes from God and His love for us and knowing that we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves, but neither should we think we're not worthy of God's love, that God does not pour His love out on us. And we tend to maybe go between these two poles, these two extremes. When I think of somebody who's just over the top, I'm going to share something with you all for a minute, and I hope you'll love me in a minute when I get done talking about it, or not stop loving me if you already do. But growing up in middle Georgia in the 80s, we had very limited options for entertainment. Even if you had cable, it was only like a dozen channels. I think it was 13, actually, channels that we got on cable. And if it was a rainy day or a bad weather day and you couldn't play outside and it was a Saturday, of course, the TV came into play. And on Saturday mornings, please don't judge me, I watched a lot of professional wrestling. Maybe, like I said, maybe it was rural middle Georgia, maybe it was just me. But I watched in the 80s as a child a whole lot. Actually, it wasn't wrestling. When you watch wrestling as an Olympic sport, it's something that you can have as a varsity sport that people can medal in and excel at and win real championships in. This is not wrestling. This is wrestling. And on Saturday mornings, I watched a lot of wrestling. And my favorite, and I haven't watched wrestling in a long, long time, and it's not what it was. Back in the 80s when the production values were low and it was a little more regional than it is now, I think it was somehow better. But anyway, my favorite wrestler, or wrestler, without even having to think about it, is none other than Ric Flair. Now, I'm not, see, I know, I'm surprised. I got an amen when I said that at the earlier service. I didn't really, but I want you all to think that I did get some nods. You remember those days, if you were watching wrestling during that time, and if you weren't, there's a bunch on YouTube if you ever want to kill a rainy afternoon. Ric Flair would come out there in the interview, and I remember even as a boy looking at it and thinking, you know, this doesn't seem quite real. And not just the wrestling itself, but all the theatrics around it, where they'd come out and talk about themselves and talk about one another. And, you know, Ric Flair would come out and for his interview... With Mean Gene, that's who interviewed him. I don't know if y'all remember that. But anyway, he uh, was the reporter. Reporter. He would come out and he'd talk about how much money he had in his limousine, in his jet plane, and how pretty his girlfriend was, and how much money he had. And he'd go on and on and on and on and on. And even in elementary school, I remember watching thinking, this is just too much. This doesn't, the theatrics of it. Now, of course, I wouldn't have had the language then, but it just, the, the, it just was false. Kept watching it, but you could see through the facade. That's an extreme example, I think. And of course, you know, Ric Flair was a man playing a part. But still, that that that, that attitude we've we've seen that, haven't we? We've all seen, maybe not to that extreme. By the way, I, I've been tempted to do the Ric Flair woo. You know, when he flashes his hair out and go woo. I'm not going to do that. It'd be too loud. But we've all seen someone who embodies that sort of. Just over the top, 
I'm so awesome attitude, and we see it for what it is. But then we've also seen the person who doesn't recognize their own worth. It's not quite the same example, but I was thinking of William Shakespeare. Yeah, you probably had to read Shakespeare in school. I was an English major in college, so I read a whole lot of Shakespeare. But you know, he's almost, in, for in English literature, Shakespeare is, is sort of the, the godfather of them all. And he wrote, of course, during his own lifetime, he was famous, he was well-known, but he was not considered great. He was not considered to be a, a great artist or author of literature. He was seen in much the same way we might see a, of someone who writes for TV or the movies. That's not to say there aren't super intelligent, super nice screenwriters and television writers. And I've seen some movies and TV series that I think are wonderful, but I wonder how many of those are going to be studied in school 500 years from now. It was, over, it was about 100 years after Shakespeare's death before he was considered great. As I said, people knew who he was, just as you might know who a particular writer, but it was considered sort of pulp fiction. It was popular sort of writing. It was not great literature. And it wasn't until he'd been dead 100 years that he was seen as a literary giant. Sometimes we might not be able to see our worth in the moment. We might not be able to see our worth in the middle of whatever's going on. But our true worth isn't always apparent to us, I believe, because it's derived not from within us, but it's derived from God. We're not great because of what we do or don't do. We are great when we allow God to lead us into living a Christ-like life. There's an Episcopal priest named Joseph Pagano who writes in modern-day Donatism in the Gospel. There's good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. None of us, none of us, none of us is worthy or deserving of God's grace and mercy. Our vegetarianism, our activism, our good works, our acts of piety, our love for puppies will not get us into heaven. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The good news is that while we were yet sinners, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who through His life, death, and resurrection has made us acceptable in God's sight and through His holiness has made us holy and acceptable in Him. My purity or goodness... Your purity or goodness, human purity or goodness has nothing to do with it. It's all about God's choice, God's good pleasure, God's grace freely bestowed on us through the cross of Christ by which we have received forgiveness. And this is good news. We have no purity or holiness apart from the grace, love, and mercy of God. Now how we respond to this good news ought to make a difference in our lives. In gratitude for the free gift of God's grace, we ought to lead better lives, good lives, indeed holy lives. Now, if that sounds like a paradox, it's because it is. It's the paradox that we are utterly dependent on the forgiveness and grace of God and that we are also called to a devout and holy life. Friends, this should not be and must not be because we see ourselves as better than the people around us. We shouldn't condemn or cut people off because they're different from us or 
think differently than us or have failed in some way in their lives that we think they might should be cut off from God or cut off from us. Because anyone we'll ever know is a child of God, just as we are children of God. And God has a purpose and a plan for everyone we'll ever meet, just as he has for us. Our own innate goodness or badness has nothing to do with it. We are called to love how God loves, to see ourselves with humility, but a humility that acknowledges that we are God's sons and daughters. And to see those around us as God's sons and daughters. So that goodness and love and mercy can flow between us from God. And we will fall short. Make no mistake. We do and will fall short. And so we're called to ask forgiveness. Knowing that when we ask God for forgiveness, He grants it. And having received forgiveness, keep going. And keep trying. Will you pray with me? Good and gracious God, you promised to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. You are the hope of the world. Give us strength that we might serve you. Make us humble that we might live for your glory alone. Having been fed by worship and by your word, make us faithful witnesses to your love and grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.